Today we conclude our series of messages from the Song of Solomon, focusing on the fulfillment that God intends in marriage. In the eight chapters of this Old Testament wisdom literature, I don't know whether you've picked up on it or not, but it seems to me like God is, is just shouting. Our Creator, our Heavenly Father is shouting, romantic love is my plan. From the beginning, when I created male and female. Friends, the reason people are so confused today about romantic love is that we haven't talked about it enough in church. And our silence about what the Bible teaches has created a vacuum. And that vacuum is being filled with our peers and with secular education and with the media. Sacred romance. Sacred romance has been hijacked. It's been distorted, even perverted, by television and the movies and the computer and magazines and paperback books. Biblical morality is being displaced by cultural immorality. And no thinking person would deny that our American culture is in free fall today. If you've been paying attention, just the last three to four weeks, you know that we are in a tough season as, as Christ followers who have a biblical worldview. These are just facts. The Boy Scouts of America decided to allow openly gay boys to become a part of their organization. And then what? A week or two later, the Supreme Court of the United States struck down the Defense of Marriage Act in our most populous state of California, moving us yet another step closer to the national endorsement of same-sex marriage. Exodus International, a Christian ministry, 30 years they've been in existence, 30 years, dedicated to leading men and women out of the homosexual lifestyle, gave up and closed their doors last week. In several major newspapers, same-sex couples are now routinely pictured and listed in the weddings column. These are just facts from the last three to four weeks. Bottom line, folks, the middle ground has disappeared. It's disappeared. And people everywhere are having to choose between the world's value system and the biblical value system. And when it comes to how men and women relate to each other romantically. The disparity is extreme between the broad way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life. But the Bible is crystal clear. It's crystal clear. Look at just one verse, Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage, God's definition of marriage, should be honored by all and the marriage bed be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. But in spite of God's Word, marriage is just not as honored by people today. Since the year 2000, we have seen the number of couples cohabiting has increased fourfold. And it's not just the Hollywood crowd here. The majority of Americans today do not believe that living together before marriage is immoral. 
And one-third of people who regularly attend church do not believe. It is morally wrong. Friends, this should be of great concern to us, that God's standard for marriage as the foundation for the family is being ignored, it's being disregarded or mocked. And so good people are being wounded. And innocent children are being damaged. And the stability of the nation is being threatened. That's the bad news. What's the good news? Let me get to it today by telling you a true story from Genesis chapter 29. It's a love story with an unexpected twist. There's a man named Laban who had two daughters. Leah was his older daughter. Rachel was his younger daughter. But their age wasn't the only difference between them. The Bible says that Leah had nice eyes but that Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. And Abraham's grandson, Jacob, fell in love with Rachel. And Jacob agreed to work for his future father-in-law, Laban, for seven years in order to wed Rachel. And when the seven years were up to the day, it would be my guess, we read his words in Genesis 29, 21. Jacob said, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Okay, that's a little tacky, but let's not be too hard on the guy. He had a seven-year engagement. I was engaged for eight months, and that was long enough for me. <laughs> well, on their wedding night, Laban must have spiked Jacob's punch because he substituted his older unmarried daughter, Leah, as the bride. Well, what I want to talk to you about in the next few minutes is how Jacob felt that morning when he awakened and realized he had married the wrong woman. I can just imagine when the sun rose and the daylight flooded their room, Jacob looked at Leah and he thought to himself, you know, mother said that that women are not as attractive in the morning before they get ready for the day, but this is ridiculous. Imagine in that moment all the possible themes for future Jerry Springer shows. Your sister's hot, but you're not. Surprise morning makeovers. Maybe that one. My sister, my sub. Or I married the wrong person. But don't you think that what happened in this true Old Testament story happens a lot in real life? Not literally, but I've heard this from people who got married, and after a few years they say something like this, I'm not happy in my marriage. I'm not fulfilled. He or she is not the same person I married. Where's the fulfillment that should be in our relationship? Why don't we have what other couples seem to have? Well, this morning I want to give you the, the short answer about what's missing, and then I want to, want to spend the rest of the time in the Song of Solomon demonstrating how it can be restored. Here's the short answer. What causes the lack of fulfillment in marriage is the loss of romance or the absence of romance. And we know that romance can fade with the passing of time, but 
But it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. We've all seen older couples who've been married for decades who hold hands and smile and pat and embrace each other. We have one of those couples in our service this morning. They're sitting right back there, Manfred and Fran Schaus. I want to ask you, Manfred, would you just take Fran's hand and hold it up so people can see where you are? You don't need to stand right there in the middle. How many years have you two been married? 59 years. They're one of the most romantic couples in this church family, I'm telling you. On the other hand, we've all seen married couples who seem to live on different planets, never talking, never touching, barely tolerating each other after 20 or 30 or 40 years together. Listen, if we want a peaceful and happy marriage in the autumn of our lives, the time to start is now. If we want to reap fulfillment in marriage, we've got to sow romance. And that's what we're seeing in the Song of Solomon after the king and the Shulamite woman are married, beginning in chapter 7, they're both making generous deposits in the marital bank of romance. And I do want you to see something here. I want you to notice that once again in our text, the husband is leading. He is the one who's initiating romance. One of the most potent threats to long-term fulfillment in marriage is a passive man, a man who's checked out and is rarely thoughtful, considerate, or intentional. I got a series of about six pictures that'll illustrate that the problem is actually worldwide. Here we have from the United Kingdom, he's all safe and dry in the tent, and his wife is out there on a mat on the rocks and the dirt. What else? United States of America. <laughs> We're not proud. Now look at this. This is Poland. He's got the umbrella. He's carrying a bottle of Coke. His wife coming along behind him. What's she got? One, two, three, four, five, six cases of Coke. Well, here's Greece. He's out front, strolling down the road. His wife is carrying the entire black forest on her back. <laughs> then we've got Serbia. Oh, this is good. He's up front driving the tractor. What's that? His, his, his wife and his mother-in-law are in the cage in the back there. And don't you just love the Irish? Here it is. He's, he's carrying a six-pack there, and he's holding her hand. How nice. While she carries the, the case. Well, there you have it. In chapters 7 and 8 of the Song of Solomon, we've got the, the husband romancing his wife and the wife responding to him romantically. And I want us to look this morning at five statements made by the husband to his wife, and six statements made by the wife to her husband. And as we hear their conversation, we're going to learn some things about 
romantic love from God's perspective. So first the king speaks, and he begins by complimenting her on her appearance and on her character, and he communicates to her the delight that she brings him. This is chapter 7, verse 1. He says, How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter! Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a craftsman's hands. So, his praise for her did not stop after the courtship, after the wedding, after the honeymoon. They've been together here for a while, and he has become even more specific. He's becoming an expert on his wife. He even notices how nice her feet look in sandals. Now, part of romance is becoming a student of your spouse learning what he or she, she responds to romantically. Let me tell you the way this works at our house. My wife's love language is acts of service. So this past Thursday was July the 4th. I was at home. I had her make me out a to-do list. We were having a few families over for a cookout that evening. I made a list of everything that was on that to-do list. I swept the porches, weeded her rose bushes. I cut the watermelon, and I put those fancy edges on, on the watermelon and scooped out melon balls. That was me. I sliced the hamburger buns. I set up the table, carried down the chairs, folded clothes, set up the smoker, cleaned up the kitchen. And then I went in and got ready for the day, but before I left the house to come over here to church to work on this message, she surprised me. She grabbed me and laid a kiss on me. <laughs> Husbands, learn what your wife likes. Make her feel loved and valued. Then do it. Say it. I'm telling you, it becomes a gift you give yourself. And wives, fix your husband's favorite meal and wear the clothes that he likes to see you in. It, it doesn't take a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of time to be romantic. You just have to be dialed in. You just have to get a clue and then be intentional to follow up. Look at verse 2, chapter 7. He says, Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. You're getting ahead of me. <laughs> Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Now, I think you better interpret this one a little bit. I don't think I would use this one verbatim when complimenting, <laughs> when complimenting your wife. Uh, avoid comparing her belly to a mound of wheat <laughs> or a mound of anything for that matter. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. In Hebrew, the belly is the seat of emotion. It is kind of a heart, the core of a person. And wine is often a metaphor for blessings. And the wheat and the lilies are the early and late vegetation. So when he says that her belly is a place where wine and wheat and lilies are ever-present, it's like saying to her, your character... The essence of who you are, the inner woman you really are, is the wellspring of every good thing in my life. 
Solomon does a beautiful job of weaving compliments on her appearance and her character together. And this doesn't sound very natural to most of us men, but listen, guys. We do a lot of things in life that are not natural, but we discipline ourselves to do them if they're important. So we need to learn some lessons here from the king as he initiates romance with his wife. And the payoff of expressing our praise and affection to our wives is enhanced romance and thus fulfillment in the marriage. We'll skip down to verse 5. Verse 5, he says, Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its traces. I think he's telling her she's got a great head on her shoulders. I think he's telling her that she has a lot of class. He's telling her that he will never take her for granted. Guys, short note to self. Pay attention to your wife from her shoulders up and not just from her neck down. Verse 6, he says to her, How beautiful you are and how pleasing, O love, with your delights. Again, with the compliments of her character, compliments of her beauty. Husbands, listen. No one's praise means more to your wife than yours. Okay, so now we have a PG-13 alert. In fact, I'm not even going to read this verse out loud. I'm going to let you read it for yourselves. Here we go. Verses 7, 8a. I read that verse and I thought, easy there, big boy. <laughs> But in the context of the marriage bond, and that's what we're talking about here, in the context of the marriage bond, this kind of talk is playful and it is appropriate. The husband desires his wife and he lets her know it. He's respectful, but he's also a little erotic. And wives want to be desired by their husbands. They don't want to be treated impersonally. They don't want to be made to feel used. They want to be valued. They want to feel cherished. They want to be desired. Now, at this point, the conversation shifts from the husband to the wife. See, after he has praised her character and her beauty, and after he has expressed his desire for her, it becomes easy for her to open her heart to him. And we see it in the next several verses. She's responsive, even aggressive. Now, one of the worst things a wife can do to her husband is to reject him when he's trying to get close to her. It's not a good situation if he truly opens his heart to her and she shuns him. Rather, look at how the Shulamite woman responds to her husband, beginning in verse 9. May the wine... Go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. Now, once again here, we have figurative language. She is saying she wants to intoxicate him with her love. Once he had admired her and desired her, 
She was not resistant to him. She was not critical of him. She warmly responds to his affection. And she says in verse 10, I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. In the Hebrew, the word here for desire means to consume something. Her husband desires her, and she's proud of it. She wants to have that effect on him. I remember Pastor W.A. Criswell once saying about his wife, Muriel, he said, there are times when I love Muriel so much, I just want to eat her up. And then there are times when I wish I had. <laughs> well, the Shulamite woman is saying here that her, her husband does not have to go looking. Her husband does not have to go lusting anyplace else because I am his, and he has me. Now, let me say at this point that there is no excuse. There is no acceptable rationalization for a husband to get caught up in pornography. But some men have been weak because of constant rejection or unresponsiveness by their wives. Apparently, this isn't a problem for the king's wife. Look at verse 11. She says, Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. So she is making plans. She's not just being passive and letting him make all the moves. And for most husbands, it's a romantic thing when the wife makes it clear that she is just as interested in him as he is in her. And here she is. She's making plans. She's got a bed and breakfast booked, and she's going to surprise him with the plans that she's made. Verse 12, let us go into the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. Now, I'm pretty sure they're not going out to check on the farm foliage here. What she's saying is, even though we have been married for a while, my passion is still for you. I still want you my desire is still ripe. Either that or she's planning some kind of a rendezvous out in the field, depending on how you interpret it. But the romance is clearly there in verse 12. Then in verse 13, she says, The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, and I have stored up for you my lover. Again, I remind you, this is in the context of the marital bond. This is in the context of marriage. And like raisins, mandrakes were believed to be an aphrodisiac. She's being pretty aggressive here, promising her husband that she has a surprise or two for him. They have ways that they're both comfortable expressing their love for each other, but she doesn't want sameness. She doesn't want routine to limit them in their relationship. She doesn't want to be boring or predictable in her expressions of affection for her husband. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. She says, if only you were to me like a brother, then if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. Now, in Israel, among the Hebrews, it was not considered socially acceptable to kiss your husband or your wife outside in public. It was considered to be in poor taste, rude. But if you had a sibling, if you had a brother, 
and you kissed him in public, it was no big deal. It sounds strange, but she's saying, I wish I could just kiss you anytime, anywhere I want, and no one would think a thing about it. So, the king and his bride are married, and they're still very much in love. And that's as it should be. And we've been privileged to overhear their words and for the last three weeks to sense the chemistry of their love. And it's so refreshing to know that the excitement and the commitment and the fulfillment of romantic love is God's plan for a man and a woman who pursue his best in their dating, in their courtship, in their marriage. But here's the thing. Some men would complain that when it comes to romance, my wife is just not responsive to me. It just isn't working. Our song used to be, I will spend my whole life through loving you, just loving you. But over time, it's become, you don't close your eyes anymore. When I, you've lost that love and feeling, now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you remember how this section of Scripture started? The husband was taking the lead in being attentive, being considerate, praising and complimenting and romancing his wife. It was consistent. It was daily. And when there were differences that showed up in their marriage, you remember last week Kyle talked about it, the little foxes in the vineyard. Whenever there were problems in their marriage, he didn't get angry. He didn't sound off. He didn't blow his stack. He wasn't demanding. He wasn't controlling. He wasn't paternal with her. He treated her like a full partner in the relationship. So, men, if you are not tenderly romancing her, don't expect her to respond well to you. And wives, remember that romance is as much a discipline as it is a feeling. Sometimes it doesn't come naturally. But remember this, when you act the way you wish you felt, you'll often wind up feeling the way you act. Sometimes fulfillment in marriage is held hostage because neither partner will initiate change. Neither the husband nor the wife will be humble enough and courageous enough to start a new cycle. So the wife says, I'd be more responsive if he would be more romantic. And the husband says, I would be more romantic if she would be more responsive. At some point, someone has to resolve this Mexican standoff. At some point, someone has to have the humility and the courage to make the first move. I think a lot of marriages are not fulfilling because romance simply gets set aside. We, we have busy lives, demanding jobs, family activities and schedules, 
and we know it's important, but we just don't get around to focusing on it. We'll get to it later. Sometimes later never comes. And wrecking a marriage is a lot like wrecking a car. There are two ways to wreck a car. One is you run the car off the road and you slam it into an oak tree. That'll wreck the car. One minute everything is fine, the next the car is totally destroyed. But there's another way to wreck a car, and that is you just don't ever change the oil. It'll take a little longer, but eventually the engine will lock up and you'll have a wreck on your hands. And marriages don't usually end because a couple figuratively slams into a tree or careens off a bridge. There are times when there can be cataclysmic events that, that slam a marriage, financial crisis, third-party involvement, loss of a child. But usually not. Usually it's long-term neglect. And there may even be good intentions to fix it. We know this needs to be fixed, but there's no follow-through. There are no changes made. So the husband and wife decide to settle for what they have or what they don't have would probably be more accurate. This sometimes happens in the spiritual realm. You'll talk to people who will say, we know we need to get back in church. Another month, two months passes. You know, we, we, we're going to get started. We, we know we need to get started back. They never pull the trigger. Nothing ever changes. They never really take the concrete steps. Well, we've looked at the Song of Solomon for the last three weeks, and we've seen the emotional and the physical connections that kept romance in the marriage, and so keep fulfillment in the marriage. But there's a third connection that's even more dispensable, and actually it's the most significant, and that is the spiritual connection. Now, quite often when two people are courting, dating, preparing for marriage, this doesn't seem very important. In fact, sometimes they can have vast religious differences and they say, ha, we love each other. It doesn't matter. Friends, I'm telling you, it does matter. It is vital. There's a reason why Scripture says, do not be mismated, mismatched, unequally yoked with unbelievers. You see, the average man has no idea how much his wife's desire for him is connected to his godly character. If he has godly character, she knows she can trust him when he goes out of town on a business trip. And the average woman has no idea how much her husband's love for her is connected to her godly virtue. Every man wants a woman with a heart that is right. And you've all seen this, this triangle with the G at the top. And the H at the bottom, the W at the opposite corner, husbands, wives, God. It's a simple, simple diagram, and yet it is profoundly true. And every person who's in this assembly this morning who is unmarried, you need to fix this triangle in your mind. 
And every couple here this morning who is married, fix this triangle in your mind. This is irrefutable truth. The closer you get to the Lord as individuals, the closer you will get to one another as a couple. And I wish at this point in the service you could have Manfred and Fran share with you. Wish we had time. Kayleen and I would, would share with you. Your late years in marriage, 40, 50 years of marriage, they can be. They can be your golden years. If that's happening, if that's not happening, you've settled. The closer you get to the Lord as individuals, the closer you'll get to each other as a couple. I just want to know this morning, are you on that path? Are you moving that direction? And if you need to start this morning by getting connected to the Lord, by getting connected to His church here at Crossroads, we'd love to talk to you today. We'll be down front to meet you right now while we stand together and worship.